Welcome to Launched. I'm Charlie Chapman, and today I'm excited to bring you the developer behind Overcast and co-host of the Accidental Tech Podcast, Marco Arment. Marco, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for finally having me on the show. <laughs> I, man, that was that was your response uh, whenever I asked you, and I can't tell you how long I had sat there and been like, because I couldn't find your email, I think, and I think I just <laughs> tweeted you, which I felt like was crossing this line, and I didn't know what to do. Why? I, I don't know. You, I think I've listened to too much uh, Cortex, and so uh, Gray has, you know, there's a very intense protocol, and so I I like... I feel like I'm entering somebody's sacred space if I uh, like email them, for example. And so I always want to ask somebody if I'm doing something cold in a way that feels uh, respectful of their time, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> well, at some point, like when you have like half my friends on, at some point, it starts being weird <laughs> that you haven't asked me. I start thinking like, am I, is there something wrong with me? Like, yeah, maybe, I, I maybe I'm no longer you. relevant. <laughs> well, so I'll be honest. Uh, oh, yeah, it's because I don't like you. No, <laughs> that's uh, yeah, the truth comes out. <laughs> your so I, I talked to Casey at one point too uh, through email talking about something else at one point and I think it was right after he released uh, P- uh, Peekaboo Pika Peekaview Peekaview yes I knew it was an excellent name and an amazing icon and I was like I would love to have you on but you literally just cataloged the entire launch on ATP and all of your other podcasts so it kind of makes it like how do you cover something that you you both have like covered so well through all your other all the other podcasts that you do. But I feel like with you, the way I'm looking at this is, you know, you have this like long career, but because podcasting and blogging that you've done for so long is so uh, extensive and like live, so to speak, I think this might be a good opportunity to kind of like condense your career into an episode. And so we can like walk through what I'm really looking at is uh, your like iOS indie career. So kind of starting with Instapaper mm-hmm. and walking through the magazine to Overcast. Does that does that make sense to you? I mean, I guess I'll have to leave out all my old QBasic stuff. But yeah, I, I guess we can make this work. <laughs> I mean, we could make a, you know, an hour long uh, <laughs> podcast on that if you want. Uh, I don't. <laughs> it's, it isn't very interesting. <laughs> no, it's fun. No, I because I think it's it is it's interesting. Like, you know, when you have somebody who has hundreds of hours of content out there, on so, like on some level, I do feel like I've told every story a million times before. On the other hand, I can't expect anybody out there to have actually listened to all of that who would be like, you know, either not having that much time or like just finding my work r- recently or something like it, it's I can't expect everyone to know everything that I've ever said. And, you know, similarly, like when I hear other people on podcasts, yes, I do listen to your podcast <laughs> when, I, when I hear like, you know, other other people you've interviewed, like. Sometimes I know the people very well and I've heard many of their podcasts for years going back. Sometimes that's the first I've ever heard from somebody. And so I think it does help to have kind of like a, a, a summary or an overview or like, you know, just have, have this all in one place for those people out there who haven't heard of this person before and haven't and aren't familiar with their work or aren't familiar with them like as a person. So and that's I mean, I feel like that's kind of what podcasting is great for is like showing that like showing that in a, in a reasonably I hate to use the word concise with podcasts, yeah. but in a reasonably <laughs> concise way relative to, you know, all right, first go back and read these thousands of blog posts and right. listen to yeah, hundreds exactly. of hours of this other show. And yeah, so I I'm totally on board. Yeah. I mean, talking just personally, I came into ATP, 
I don't know how many years into it, but I was one of those people that would, if I got into something, I would go back and listen to, you know, everything leading up to that. And I attempted that with ATP, but <laughs> you guys are so consistent and they're so long yes. that I was, I, I like calculated how long it would take. And I was like, I'll literally never listen to anything again if I try to do this. So, uh, I've had to piece together, you know, some things from certain parts of your, uh, your past. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I don't. I wouldn't expect anyone to be able to do that. Some people have. Like we, we will occasionally hear from people who say, you know, I found the show a few months back or whatever, and I went through the entire back catalog, and I'll be like, what? Wow, like that's that's impressive because it's just at this point we're you know 426 episodes in, and each one is usually about two hours long. So yeah, that's that's a lot of hours. It's a lot of a lot of Apple complaining. They listen. Yeah, it's like four x speed or whatever the the top speed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you can do 2.9 2.9 okay i'm not quite there it's not three because as soon as you set your speed to 3x in apple's speed up algorithm it starts actually cutting out chunks of the audio rather than just speeding it up further it starts just like cutting out you know every like fourth you know 100 millisecond chunk or whatever ah like the audible app does if i put it at even 1.1 yo yeah this you know i i don't like to i'm not i haven't used the audible app i I, i'm not i don't like to rip on other people's apps too much but it does surprise me in general how many podcasts and, and similar apps don't do like the absolute basics required to make them sound good like if you implement a speed control there's a couple of little settings you can set in the various audio apis that you could you get to choose which algorithm it uses whether it prioritizes like battery life or sound quality and it made sense to prioritize battery life on the iPhone one, <laughs> but it no longer makes sense. Like it no longer makes any meaningful difference. <laughs> right. And, and it's, it's literally like one line of code that you can set to make your speed up audio sound good versus the default, which is not good. And I mean, maybe half of the apps set it <laughs> and, I, and, and I don't think the other half are trying to preserve your battery life. I think they just don't know. It's and like the default it, or something. Yeah. And, and I think they, I think they don't know and, or don't care. Hmm. And I think there's like, if, if we can get into one quick lesson about indie app development like if you care about little crap like that that it seems like not a lot of other people care about you're already way ahead of the game because most people really don't have that attention to detail or that that nerdery about anything like i'm I'm such a nerd about audio quality and most people aren't and most people, if if they heard an app that didn't set that flag and it has the crappy, you know, regular speed setting, most people would think, okay, well, it's sped up. It's supposed to sound a little bit garbage, but I'll take it because who cares? Uh, or if they, if they would even notice, right? It checks the feature box, right? Right, exactly. Uh, but there's always a market for appealing to the other people who care. Even if you don't think there's very many of them, even if the average person is not one of them. If you can appeal to the people who care in some way, you can have a market and you'll be surprised how little competition there is for people who care. Yeah, no, I yeah, I think that uh, that definitely is something I've seen in this space. And it's the thing you like look for whenever you Google uh, best fill in the blank app on, you know, whenever you're looking for something, that's usually what you're looking for, right? Is what is the what is the indie darling or the thing that this person spent, you know, their life crafting this, this little thing or whatever. Oh yeah. Versus the thousands of other versions of the same app that maybe even have more features, but don't necessarily do them well. Yeah. I feel like, you know, so many apps are, you know, people evaluate them sometimes based on like feature checklist comparisons. And 
you know, it's hard to evaluate the the sum total of what it is to use an app because as we as we know as developers, like when you make an app, you have hundreds or thousands of little implementation details that you have to decide how exactly is this thing going to look and work and how what exact words am i going to use to message this and when you in this certain combination of conditions what exactly should happen and between different apps that ostensibly do the same thing like a podcast app or you know any any kind of app to do apps note taking apps any kind of app like they they are such the combinations of these hundreds of little tiny behavioral decisions that two apps can have exactly the same like high level bullet point feature checklist so you would think oh they're pretty similar apps and then when you use one and then you use the other like one of them feels like constant series of paper cuts and the other one feels like it fits you just right and it's because it's all those little tiny decisions that vary between apps just based on like what the developer or designer thought was the right thing to do in some weird context that you would never think to even specify if you were telling someone, all right, build, build a, you know, a note-taking app with these five features. You would never think to specify, all right, in this little behavioral detail, do this. But like when you're implementing it, you have to make those decisions. And so we all do. Right. And we all make them differently. And it's the, it's that combination of stuff that makes certain apps like you know fit you like a glove versus feel all wrong to you. Yeah, it takes me back to uh, Slugline with uh, Stu Masterwitz and uh, Chris Torres. Ostensibly, they're just making a Markdown editor, but like it's a Markdown editor made for people writing scripts. Right. And they talked about in that episodes and they and they've tweeted about it a couple times where it's like there's all these little micro details where they're like, well, you know, ninety nine percent of people writing text if they hit this combination of keywords they would expect this to happen but for this small sliver of people this is what they would expect to happen and by like sort of carving that niche for that group of people that are basically them this is where the like indie person kind of comes into play then it makes the app feel like it's doing what you'd expect which is like a magical feeling Oh, totally. And and like the more involved something is in your daily life or habits or workflow or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call like the apps you use constantly, you know, the, the more you use something, the more all those little details matter. And the more it feels like a huge burden or, or annoyance when they change <laughs> or, or when they're wrong. You know, that's why, you know, like I'm, I'm so tired, like I use um, TextMate as my text editor and, you know, TextMate too, admittedly, but this is something that's not currently very much in fashion <laughs> among most developers. <laughs> um, you know, I think many of us, uh, many people moved on in the last 20 years to something else, but I, it just fits me so well. And everything else I've tried, it just is not, it doesn't work the way my brain is wired to expect my text editor to work. So I've been using the same one for so long. And there's so many of those little behavioral details that are just different in different apps. And even though you can make an argument for some of them being better in different apps, because they're different to me, it feels all wrong. Yeah. Well, you're speaking to someone who still uses Git K. Um, despite I don't know it, what that is. <laughs> it's like the, the little uh, uh, Git... Um, looking at your git commits and git tree it's like git tower okay but it, it came with git uh until recently i think oh wow and it was it's really bad i mean it's not even worth looking into but it was one of those where it came with it i got used to it and to this day it's still like i still open it up all the time because that's what my brain's uh mapped to but anyway i already let this get way <laughs> off the rails uh which isn't exactly the most surprising welcome to podcasting with me yeah <laughs> 
Um, so I guess before we get into like Instapaper, um, and then your, your sort of track to overcast, let's give everyone like a, a primer on who you are. So the questions I ask everybody is where are you from? Uh, do you have a formal education related to what you do? And then what was your career like, uh, somewhat briefly leading up to, uh, starting Instapaper? Sure. So, um, my, I'm from Columbus, Ohio and, uh, it's, you know, there's not a lot to say about Ohio. It's a really nice place to grow up, but if you don't live there or have family there, I, there's not a lot to you know to really point out about it. <laughs> but it was a, it was a perfectly nice place to grow up. Um, there's a lot of lot of ranch dressing there. That's <laughs> whenever whenever I would go it's back defining like, visiting, feature. <laughs> I would be shocked. Like you know, having 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 since moved to New York, I would go back here and there for various family things, and I was always surprised. Like wow. The portions at restaurants are quite large, and there is a lot of ranch dressing everywhere. <laughs> things I never noticed <laughs> as a kid, but when you go back, you realize these things. Anyway, it was, it's a perfectly nice place. But um, anyway, so um, school brought me to Pennsylvania, uh, job stuff. I started out uh, at a company in Pittsburgh. Uh, there was a web search engine that most people would possibly remember for its uh, short-lived web search engine called Clusty that would cluster your search results. Uh, and the company was actually an enterprise search company. I worked for them and helped build that whole thing and, and worked there for a couple of years after college. I, oh, I do have a formal education. I think I completed it officially. There, <laughs> I kind of stumbled out. School was, school was not uh smooth for me <laughs> it was it was not something that uh that came easily to me um so i uh, i kind of fell out of college eventually and had to take an extra semester during my first year of working outside of college uh, to actually officially finish my degree and get it by mail it was a whole thing because <laughs> i it was i failed a required class senior year anyway so school i kind of i kind of fumbled my way through and eventually made it out i'm pretty sure my grade point average at the end of college was somewhere below a 2.0. So we're not talking, uh, you know, great academic performance here. Uh, I, I did major in computer science and I was okay at that. Uh, but I was always much more, um, talented on the, like just coding stuff side and not so much on the theory and math, uh, side of things. Um, and so therefore I, I did kind of have a rough time there, but I eventually made it out. And, because I had such a terrible GPA, none of the big tech companies would even consider hiring me. I sent I sent resumes to everybody. I didn't have any connections at all. I had like you know no you know families who worked there or whatever. Like no friends. I couldn't get any internships at any of the big companies because I didn't know the right people and I had terrible grades. And so I really didn't have a lot of openings in the job world to me. Um, so I started doing just, you know, some quick tech support work, uh, to start paying bills right after college. And, uh, somebody who was actually in my college graduating class had gotten a job in, in Pittsburgh. They wanted another person. So she recommended me for that job. I went in, interviewed, and, uh, I apparently was one of the only people who could write C code in the interview to keep in mind, this was for a C programming position. But <laughs> apparently that's many people couldn't still do it. And that's I happen to do a lot of C in college. So um, so I, I, I passed the interview and they hired me. And so I worked there for a couple of years uh, in Pittsburgh. Absolutely loved Pittsburgh. That, that's a fantastic place. I would love to live there someday again. 
And then uh, eventually, um, my uh, soon-to-be wife at that point uh, had gotten this job in New York and in Boston, and we kept just being pulled towards the East Coast for her job stuff. And uh, to make things less long distance, I sought out a job in New York. And I started looking on Craigslist and everything. Uh, tried, once again, tried to apply to all the big tech companies. Uh, still, nobody would even call me. Like, I wouldn't even get responses. I tried then working with recruiters who would then try to get there on my behalf. Got nowhere with them. Um, they're mostly just vultures, as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically, was getting nowhere in the job market. Um, eventually, I got uh, I got two interviews in, in a relatively short time. Um, one of them was for Bloomberg, the big finance you know company of Bloomberg. And uh, the other one was this weird guy named david who had this consultancy called davidville and he wanted me to make websites with him <laughs> davidville that's great that's literally that yes <laughs> <laughs> and so so i go you know i i and this these were this was you know couple within a couple of weeks of each other or like a week they were it, i got these two interviews and i went to the bloomberg interview and it was you know they they flew me out and you know i had to like go into their building one and like they, you know this big glass building in midtown and and it's super fancy and there's like this huge like atrium in the middle and you go up and every wall is glass and you look around and they actually had to print these little stickers on the doors so that people would stop crashing into them because everything was glass the walls of every conference room the walls of every office everything was different different panes of glass to, to the point where like they they brought me into an interview room and i had to ask how to get out of the room on the way out because <laughs> i had forgotten how we got in and because i you know i was nervous about the interview sure and i'm like i'm looking around the room and i'm like how how do i get out because <laughs> i couldn't find oh my the door because everything was glass <laughs> Wasn't that, anyway. wasn't that a thing with the uh, the Apple campus, uh, the spaceship? Oh, yeah. There was like yeah, they had totally. to start putting stuff on the walls because people were running into them. Yeah. It's <laughs> we're just we're all just uh, slightly more evolved birds. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the it's one of those things that sounds really cool and looks really cool, like in architectural drawings. But then in practice, like you need a little bit more to make it work. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> so I had the interview at Bloomberg and. I, in my opinion, totally bombed it. I mean, they were asking me very difficult math questions, which I could not answer very well, uh, putting me through the ringer of just like, you know, basically you know, the, the whole thing, every, every, everything that tech companies notoriously did for a while, and some of them have oh, to yeah. stopped doing them, all the brain teasers, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and then if there's a 18 light bulbs in a neighbor's house, yeah. how do you you know, find dinosaurs or something. Right. Cause that obviously helps people hire, hire you to program, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's critical thinking, Marco. Yeah. Right. So yeah, basically like it, the, the entire hiring process of big companies was a giant filter to keep me out basically. <laughs> but anyway, uh, eventually I, I've stumbled through the interview and I thought I bombed it and I didn't like any of the people who interviewed me. I, I thought this was, I'd be miserable here, but it was the only interview i'd completed so far to that at that time and they offered they actually offered me a job after it and i thought well that's weird i wouldn't have offered me a job after that, that interview but <laughs> oh well <laughs> they, they did and it, it was for a decent amount of money so i thought okay well i think i'd be miserable doing it but i don't have any other options <laughs> and then some short time later i got this interview with davidville and i went to the davidville office and it was it looked like almost like a preschool uh, because David had shared the office with a guy, Fred Seibert, who is a cartoon producer. Ah. And, and so the, the office was full of like 
cartoon paraphernalia and fred's a very fun person so it's just like very fun decorations and colors and everything and it was this office shared by a few different companies uh you know i mean not this was not a huge office a large room with (laughs) with maybe 20 desks (laughs) in it but uh anyway so i went there and i'm looking around i'm trying to figure out like wait is is fred my boss or is david gonna be my boss what's who what is the company here and david was <laughs> suspiciously young looking and i thought well that is is this a real job because i'm like moving from pennsylvania using probably at that point i, was, I knew i was going to using using all my savings to make the move to new york right and so i'm like am i gonna dump all my savings and then have this is this even a real job that is gonna be here in a month when i get here <laughs> and the difference though was that I liked talking to David. It was fun. And I enjoyed myself there. And I was happy. And he didn't give me any stupid brain teaser questions. He asked me to write some code in PHP like a week before and hand it to him at my leisure. And I did. (laughs) What a surprise. Like (laughs) having somebody interviewing for a tech job, having them write some code outside of a high pressure situation is actually a much easier way to know whether they're good hires or not. (laughs) And, uh, And so, and the the key thing was that David was going to let me build websites with him on whatever computer I wanted, and he would buy me a Mac. Ah. And Bloomberg wanted me to work on their Windows Bloomberg terminals in this giant, like, boiler room situation where I'd have, like, you know, 18 inches of arm space. I almost made a joke about Bloomberg terminals, but it, it actually was a Bloomberg terminal. Yes, what they were working on at that time, this wow. was, this was um, 2006, what they were working on at that time at the job I was interviewing for was every every terminal that people would work on was a Bloomberg terminal. It was just like, you know, a specially customized version for development, I, I presume. Dang. But like they would, I walked through the office and they just had, it was this it was like a boiler room situation where there was like <laughs> long tables in this huge like cafeteria sized room and each person had like, a segment of a desk not even a full cubicle you had maybe a 48 inch wide desk with these little like curved like berms on the side to divide you from the person (laughs) next to you it was it it was as dystopian as i can possibly imagine as somebody who doesn't like big company work that much doesn't like working in windows in general and doesn't like working at all and i don't care at all about finance so that even like no part of that appealed to me and then david's like hey you want to come into this cartoon office and make websites on a mac (laughs) okay well (laughs) i'm gonna take the (laughs) risk and do that going to davidville exactly so i started there and my, my mom thought i was nuts <laughs> she's like you're moving to new york oh you're gonna lose all your money and this job is this a real job is this real anyway so got there made websites for you know for other people i was contracting uh, with davidville for um about seven months or so before david said hey i've i've wanted to be i've wanted to work on this thing called tumblr it's this idea i have uh we're gonna do that for the next few weeks and see how it goes i was like all right sure whatever you know he's he was paying me regardless so i thought great and uh started doing that and uh the rest is history on tumblr at least <laughs> i was about to say yeah so this is i mean this is the or that is the origin of of tumblr which is still around right. today which is not what the show is about actually <laughs> right <laughs> but that was uh microblogging 
site is that an appropriate uh way to describe it i mean it started out as yeah like as this you know david had had seen these things called tumble logs and there were a few a few people that were doing this form of microblogging that they were calling tumble logging and david thought that was a cool thing oh that existed before yeah th- there was there just wasn't like a pre-made cms or service to publish them okay. it was just people like hacking on their on their like you know movable type or wordpress templates or just ha- hacking things manually um and so what tumblr started out as was not it wasn't ever intended to be like a social network or anything like that it was intended to be a publishing platform for tumble logs gotcha and it was it was not until probably maybe six months in before there was any social or following component whatsoever. It was, it started out just being, here's a, a easy free publishing platform. And, and the social stuff was always kind of this, this additional layer behind the scenes. That's why there was always that, that divide between like your public tumble log and then the dashboard that helped all the social stuff on it. And because that was all really added later and, and conceptualized laser later, um, kind of as, as it evolved and, as, as we kind of realized, like, oh, this is actually more of a social thing than a publishing tool uh, as, as it went on. But that was not the original direction at all. Okay. So I'm going to do my best to not dive into that because I am interested, but that's not what we're here for. <laughs> so Yeah, if you ever want to get out Tumblr, of here tonight, that's, that's yeah. smart. <laughs> uh, so Tumblr, I mean, became a pretty big, uh, successful thing. And I imagine became a pretty significant part of your time. And you've talked a lot about... Um, the amount of you know the amount of time you were spending just trying to keep the servers from catching on fire and uh it kind of became this fast growing monster but at some point while you were working on that you you started hacking around with this thing that became instapaper so like what what's the genesis of that so the main the main like world changing event that happened was the iphone was announced and then released um within uh you know it was announced in the beginning of 2007 that's right it was like a couple of months after we started working on tumblr and so tumblr was going and then the iphone was announced and then you know about six months later like that that uh late june of that year it came out and so the the entire iPhone announcement and launch, and then a year after that, the App Store came out. All of that was happening during early Tumblr days, also. And so we were doing pretty well, like you know, making this website. Like it was keeping us very busy. But at the same time, there was this huge like mobile revolution beginning. Yeah. And so and that that was always kind of the sideline of like my job at Tumblr was never anything about mobile. I was all like server backend you know code both you know running the servers for a while um but all, mainly i was like writing the backend code okay uh, that's that was that was most of my job and and so i never i didn't have any opportunity or time there to really enter the world of mobile that was not really like I, even if i wanted to do that there we didn't really have an app at that point yet right um and and i wouldn't have had time to write one because i was too busy with yeah. keep you know with my other my other duties so um, but you know, I, I, as I was there, I was, I was riding the train every day uh, to and from work and I had some reading time and this was at the time when like dig was really popular and yeah. early, I think early Reddit was early on then too as well, but like Reddit was just the ugly dig right at that point. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was like, you know, this, this thing that like, you know, dig was for like the mainstream nerds like me and Reddit right. was for the even nerdier <laughs> nerds. <laughs> and, and I wasn't in that yep. community really. And so, yeah, dig was my site. Um, and so it was this, this era of like 
really like peak of the blogging era um all and everyone having their own site and publishing rss feeds and writing these big articles and so i would have these articles i wanted to read and i would discover them during work because i was browsing the web instead of working um, and i would think well i probably shouldn't sit here and read this 800 word article when i'm ostensibly supposed to be working right you're a good you're a good worker you're not going to commit to a uh, long form right. article you're just going to scroll through all of them yes yes i'll browse them i i have to i'm <laughs> testing my tumblr dashboard um but <laughs> so anyway i would find all these articles and i would i would want to read them on the train and so one one day after work i decided to set myself a challenge of like i wonder can i make a web app in one night that will just let me collect these bookmarks to save for later. And then I can read them like on the train or whatever else. And I said, all right, let me, let me try it one evening. Some, you know, weeknight after work. And I made from scratch, it's like, okay, new app in TextMate, you know, (laughs) new app (laughs) and uh, using my PHP framework and uh, built this thing called Instant Paper that was literally just like a quick little bookmarklet to save uh, pages to a database and that, and then a, a list screen to show them. That was it. There was no app. There was no text parser. It was literally just save this link and then you could go there and open the link. <laughs> very, very simple. So you had, did you have internet on, on your train? Sort of. So I had internet for most of the ride. It was, it was like about a half hour ride and then the last 10 minutes wouldn't have service. They, they would go underground. Ah, and so I would like try to load up a really long article right before it went underground. <laughs> so it would cast. stay in memory <laughs> on the phone <laughs> and, and you couldn't switch away from Safari because if you switched away and then came back, the page would have been kicked out of memory and it would have had to reload right. and you wouldn't be able to. <laughs> so you had to like load up like and if you were really brave, you would try to open a second tab in Safari. But you knew that, well, if you switch away from your current tab, it's probably going to lose this other one so it was this weird memory juggling game it's a good way to learn uh yeah how how safari is managing memory uh. <laughs> yeah exactly exactly <laughs> so anyway so i had this website you know that i would use eventually i realized that if i if i wrote a parser to parse just the text from the page and and just show me like unformatted text basically then it would take up less memory and it would, it would, I'd be able to keep one or two tabs in memory during that 10 minutes of no internet access uh, without oh. having it be lost. So this wasn't like trying to do like HTML5 uh, local. No, this, this predates all of that. Yeah, exactly. I, was, I can't think of the word, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, like the offline local storage. Yeah. So you were literally, you were just shrinking the size of the page so that Safari would be less likely to kick it out. Correct. Yeah, on the original okay. iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So this, I mean, this is all so much better now. You know, now we have apps. Now that tunnel has a cell tower in it. Like there's <laughs> there's so many right. things that yeah. make this better. But yeah, there's like the a time, thousand like, different was... solutions for this problem. But uh, exactly. at that time, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and there was there was no HTML5 offline stuff whatsoever. This was 2007 and 8. So it, it this this all predated all that. Um, so it's just, it was t- tough times. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um so then, you know, in early 2008, uh, Apple announces the native SDK and the upcoming App Store. And I thought, well, this could be good. Oh, and at some point in this time, I had um, publicly announced this thing. I forget exactly when that happened. I think it was the very end of 07 or something like that. But yeah, I, I found a like a blog post and it was literally just, yeah. hey, I think I'm ready for people to check this out if they're curious. You know, that's and it. It, yep. yeah, it was basically that. <laughs> yeah, that is literally that's Instapaper's launch was that blog post. <laughs> 
Um, and then John Gruber linked to it at some point really early on. Uh, and, and that, that really kicked it off, uh, from daring fireball. But, and so you had like, you know, a login feature at that point, I assume. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I had a login since day one cause I, I just only had one account. <laughs> Oh, fair enough. Okay. I built it in. I built it in from day one because I, I always overbuild my stuff like on the off chance that this becomes necessary. Uh, so yeah, I had I had all that built in, but uh, it was just like you know me and like one other person from the office using it for most of the first couple of months. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so I had this thing going. It had I forget I forget like you know before the app store, I think it had something like maybe twenty or thirty thousand users, which I thought was a massive success. Like that was. Yeah. I was I was because was it was it free? Yeah, because it, it was just a, there was I, I think I had an ad on it at some point. I for, it was from the deck I think the the deck ad network. Um, I, I don't I, I don't remember if that was exactly that time period, but there was a time where there was a deck ad on it. Uh, but regardless, um, so yeah, it it had gotten big ish in this little community I was in, mostly from John Gruber's help, <laughs> and only as a web app, like because th- there was there were no apps yet. Right, there's a sweet solution. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And when Apple announced the SDK and the App Store, you know, to come out in mid mid 2008, they announced it like like in April of that year. And so between April and July or so when it launched, I had that time to like, all right, well, now I'm going to figure out, like, can I make an app? And the number one thing I wanted to tackle was offline storage because I had this this offline problem. Like That was the number one thing. Like, right. If it weren't for that, I didn't need the rest of the app capabilities. I could read the articles in Safari just fine, but I needed offline capability. And again, there was no HTML5 stuff for that yet. So uh, I basically made like a an absolutely terrible version one of the app, super rudimentary. Like it, it, if you can even find screenshots of it, you'll see like it's it's kind of hilarious, like how basic it was. Just you know, really basic UI toolbars. Uh, you know, big text buttons everywhere. A lot of it was a web view. Like a lot of the UI was web view because right. I had already built it and, and I was I was in a rush and I wasn't very good at um, Objective C or you know Coco or anything like any of the frameworks. I was about to say, had you done any like Apple uh, development at that point? Only like a couple of experiments that you know like i would like i i had the aaron hillegas book and i i i made a couple of little desktop toys that I, you know i spent like an hour on and oh look i can make it speak words when i hit this button you know nothing right. significant <laughs> I, I i didn't have a good understanding of the apis or of the idioms or, or of the language really at that point it was just a very rudimentary understanding um so it took me that entire time to make a very basic app <laughs> that wasn't very good um and I was there not quite on day one. They, they had this big thing where like they said, if you submit by this date, you'll be there on day one. And then they had way more submissions than they thought. Right. And so I had submitted by that day, but it took it took until like day, I think, three or four of the app store. But I was there pretty close to the beginning there. And it immediately became clear to me that my assumption that people would use the app who had found the website first was totally wrong. That people were finding the app first. And the first thing the app showed you was a login screen. You could even register a new account from the app at first. Because I didn't, ah. not, not because Apple wouldn't allow it, but because I didn't think anybody would ever want to do that. Right. Who's <laughs> going to find sure, like, this? Why would they care? Right. I hadn't even considered the App Store as like a customer acquisition channel. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I had to very quickly, you know, issue an update to change that. And, and once there was that app in the store, the service just exploded. Like that's what did it. Because... It, instead of just being a, a basic bookmarking site of which there are there are tons and anybody can make one in two seconds and they have uh, because of that <laughs> uh you know the app is really what made it 
something compelling for a lot of people. And everyone had these new iPhones and everybody was, you know, looking around the app store in, in kind of like exploratory purchasing mode, which no one really does now. Right. But you know, back then, like there were so few relatively so few apps and everybody was so like hungry for their phone to do new stuff that when the app store opened, it was, it really was this massive gold rush and this huge like market making thing. It was really quite incredible uh, to be there in, the, in those early days. And Instapaper was there at the right time. It was, you know, being in the right place at the right time. And it was something that at that time there was almost no competition for. Uh, I, I didn't get my first real competitor, I think for f- at least a few months after that. So I had like, I had this kind of gr- big open green field in this booming place and it was one of those things like i'm not sure i'll ever see that again in my career like just yeah. like that that dynamic of like being in that right place at the right time with when everything's brand new you know i, I know we've we, apple i think overvalues their role in, in the creation of these things today but at the time i they were they really were kind of more correct at the time about like how easy they made things and how much they brought the market to us. Now that went away fairly quickly. Like as the market got very overrun and the race to the bottom for pricing happened and everything like it was, it was a short lived boom time for sure, but it was a hell of a boom when you were there. Yeah. Um, and, and we actually, we had one also a few years later when the iPad came out and you know, the iPad came out about, about um, two years after that or so it was in 20 in early 2010. And, that the the iPad was what turned Instapaper from a pretty good side business to my main business. Okay, uh, because it was you know just so many people were getting tablets. It was the tablet boom. The iPad you know really kicked this thing off, and people were like, "Oh, what can I do with this thing?" Well, one of the best things you could do with an iPad is read on it. Yeah, that was one of the big pitch original pitches. Exactly. And by that time, I, I was a little bit less bad at making apps. So like I had this, I, I had the momentum going from having about two years of running the iPhone app. So I had a user base established. I had press established, like you know, people knew who I was. Uh, I, I had some attention from Apple here or there, like in various app store lists and stuff. And so then when the iPad came out, that was an explosion for my business that I think I more than doubled sales for for that year. Um, just because it was so many more people wanted to read on the iPad than on their phone at that time. Now I actually think today, I mean, I'm no longer in that business, but I think today I would bet it's the opposite. I, I would bet the phone is now the much more strongly used device for that. But at the time, you know, the iPad was, was really very strong. And, and again, to be there at the beginning, there wasn't a lot of iPad software at the very beginning, even though it had the app store advantage, you know, but there still wasn't, wasn't a lot. There were some really good games, and there were some reading apps and some like, you know, movie apps and stuff. And I work. And so, (laughs) yeah, and I work, right. That was back when that was in their first productivity push for the ipad yeah they, they, they didn't quite nail it uh but they, they got back to it eventually <laughs> but that was remember that keyboard dock they had for the very first ipad yes. yeah i enjoyed all the nostalgia about the original ipad uh we got what was it late yeah. last year with the 10th anniversary or whatever that's right yeah yeah that dock was something but we eventually came back to that too <laughs> yeah exactly the, the new one's much better <laughs> yeah significantly uh so you kind of mentioned sales so at some point, at least, it was paid. Was the initial version that you got in, you know, a couple of weeks or whatever after the original launch, was that paid as well? Or was that free, like the website? The very first version was free. Okay. And I, I had always planned to have a free app and a paid app. Uh, but 
I I wasn't confident enough that the free app that, that the very first version of the app was good enough to have anybody want to pay for it. And I, I didn't want to launch into the store and charge what I thought was going to be the very low price of maybe ten dollars. Um, I didn't think I would. I, I didn't think what I had ready on day one was worth charging money for. It just wasn't good enough yet. And so I launched a paid version, I think about, I I launched it like, you know, that July for the free one. I think the paid one launched in November of 2008, somewhere around there, somewhere like in the fall of 2008, maybe August. It it was, it was like, it was a few months later. So it it was fairly early on that I had a paid version up in the store. And, and obviously at the time paid is just paid up front. There's no, there's no other business models, at least not available to like normal apps, right? Oh Yeah. Well, in-app purchase didn't exist until I think iOS five or so, um, so it, it wasn't even an option to do in-app purchase. Yeah, you that's had what to, I thought. You know, it, yeah, um, but it was uh, yeah, it paid up front, and it was originally it was ten dollars for Instapaper Pro, which is what it was called, <laughs> which added features like tilt scrolling. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> I got real fancy. <laughs> man, oh man, that makes me think of all the different Samsung. Uh, features for like fancy scrolling like the one that would try and track your eyes for scrolling (laughs) and uh yeah it it was a crazy time in terms of uh playing around with this new this whole new like user experience and seeing what would make sense and there was a lot of things that didn't make sense (laughs) oh yeah but it was so much fun you know i i really consider myself so fortunate to have been there during that time It, it, it was such a cool time you know like i I feel like I missed a lot of that time for computers because most of that time happened for computers either before I was born or before I had a computer. I didn't even have a computer until 1994. I was in sixth grade. Like we just, we couldn't afford one as a family before that. And so we just didn't have one. And so all that stuff that happened with computers, like in the early days, all the fun and people getting stuff working and the, even like the early internet stuff. Yeah. I wasn't there for most of that. And so it was really, it's really amazing to have been there for the, you know, phone, the smartphone and app store revolution. Yeah. Like I wasn't there as a user or as a a creator at the time, but I I have to imagine like, like the first time you really saw and felt like pull the refresh or some of these UI paradigms that were like innovations by indie developers. Right. uh, That had to just be really exciting. And then to see some of them become just staples that it's like, table stakes now well except for swift ui i guess but yeah for everything else <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it, it really was something to see you know i i hope for for everyone out there who who was too young or not in the industry at that time i hope for all of your sake that at some point in your career you get to see something like this you know because it, it's it doesn't come along that often maybe you know maybe every 10 to 20 years we get something like this and it's so cool to be there when when it happens yeah no that's awesome so with Instapaper, it sounds like it was sort of an experiment that turned into a product that sort of you organically grew with um, as a product. But then your next uh, like iOS app venture, I know I think you had a couple experiments in between here, but the next big one was the magazine, right? <laughs> well, big. I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, big push. Uh, <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll go with that. So so basically, what happened was um, so Instapaper got big and it was doing well and it was doing so well that when tumblr was going through like a a growth phase that was going to end up with me being like 
having to really dramatically change my job in a way that I was both going to be unhappy with and also not very good at because it was having to like manage a bunch of people, uh, which I should never do. Um, because it was going through that, it was it was a very good time for me to leave and for them to get a new tech, you know, CTO in there who could actually like build and manage a team. Again, I can't do that. So I left Tumblr in late 2010 and did Instapaper full time for a while. And at some point, I think it was around 2012 or so, it was whenever Newsstand was released. That was iOS 5 into iOS 6. And so at that point, I, you know, iOS Newsstand came out. It was, it was added in iOS 5, I think, um, and then made better in 6. And I, I saw that there was a way to get recurring subscription income from apps. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I have all this expertise in making apps that make it in making this app that makes it really easy to read stuff and have like a nice, nice reading experience, nice typography, you know, nice layout. And I and I'm a tech blogger myself. And I know all these other bloggers. I know I know tons of writers who could write articles for a magazine. And then when Newsstand came out, it was filled mostly with terrible apps that were, you know, from the magazine industry mostly, or, you know, people who are selling them pre-made solutions that were just downloading basically giant stacks of images as their quote issues. And it was, yeah, basically giant PDFs. And so it was not a great experience to read those or to work with them. Uh, And I thought, well, I'm going to walk in here and do something right. I'm going to do this with my, (laughs) with my app experience. I'm going to make a great app and then I'll have all these bloggers. I know I'll pay them, you know, good rates because, like, also writing for magazines is not known for paying very well. Um, and I thought, well, I, you know, I, I did the math and I thought, well, if I can get, you know, a reasonable number of subscribers, I could pay people way more than the magazines pay them. I could, I would pay them on time, which, again, magazines aren't known for that either. Um, you know, you're lucky if you get paid like within six months for a lot of these, a lot of magazines out there. <laughs> and, uh, and so, and I, I could make this great app that would be so much better than these PDF apps. So I thought I'm going to do it. I'm going to I'm going to launch a magazine. And I did it. <laughs> and it it went okay for a few months, but the problem was that writing an app to display magazine content is just about the easiest part of running a magazine. Yep. It turns out that running a magazine is hard for all sorts of reasons that I am not good at and that I had no interest in or business doing. <laughs> Like actually putting out an issue every single interval, whatever the interval you choose, you know, having that fixed committed schedule and having to go out there and seek pitches and go through submissions and be the editor and work with writers and deal like it's so much work that has nothing to do with the tech that you're using to build it with. Right. And I was not good at that at all. So I did hire uh, Glenn Fleischman to help me out with that for a while. Eventually I ended up selling it to him because I was done with it after a very short time. And he ran it for a while. He, he did a very good job with it, but ultimately the market was just not very big for what we were selling. Um, so it, it didn't end up succeeding long-term, but it was fun for a while. But it, yeah, it was, <laughs> it turns out that that was a lot of hubris thinking like, Oh, I'm going to make this amazing app to read magazine articles. And then yeah, it turns out magazines are way harder to run than an app that shows a text view. So at that time, so you, you mentioned that you sold that you also um, at some point sold Instapaper too, right? Yes, that's right. So what had happened was, you know, so I, I had the magazine in like, this was around 2012-ish. Uh, and then uh, in 2013, I also sold Instapaper because I had started getting this idea to make a podcast app. 
right around the same time that the magazine was not doing well, Instapaper was itself also not doing well, and I was also Instapaper. It was becoming a bigger project that, like it, in order for it to continue to do well and to be competitive at all, and to to keep up with just the platform features of, you know, keep up with all the new stuff Apple was adding and everything, keep up with all the, the features people wanted from the website and everything. Like it really needed more than one person working on it. And at that point I was also splitting my time between the magazine and everything. So right. there was a, there was like, there was so much going on in that space and all the competitors that I was fighting against all had like VC funding and big staffs. Yeah. And it, it was, it was getting to the point where I couldn't keep up and business was going down. And so I, I thought, you know what, I should sell this to somebody who could actually staff it. So I did. And uh, it, it turned out all right in the end. And so I had a clear plate. And I had this idea for a podcast app. And I thought, well, you know, I don't know if I can make this work or not. Like podcasts are not, it's not a very big business. Um, but then the main kick in the butt I got was that Tumblr also sold. And, and I, I, I was not there at that time. But because I had I had stock in Tumblr from my time there, that gave me some capital that I could re- I could fall back on if things didn't work out with whatever I tried next. So you could take kind of a risk. Yeah, I could take a risk, and and I could I could no longer work on only things that I thought would be very profitable. And so I thought, well, this podcast thing, like I love podcasts, and I want to make my own podcast app, even though I don't think it's much of a business. I, you know. Because this was again, this this was around 2013 or so. Like I'm like I don't or I, like I don't I don't think this is going to be a big money maker, uh, because you know this is just this nerdy thing that you know n- mostly nerds are listening to and and pretty crowded market at the yeah, time too, right? Unlike your other two uh, apps, right? Like you know Apple already was dominant with their podcast app, uh, that which was free and came with every phone. So like <laughs> it's you're, you're fighting an uphill battle when you're fighting against the yeah. built-in free app that almost everyone uses. You're pretty Sherlocked, right? And and as you mentioned, and and there was a pretty healthy indie scene of podcast apps back then too. You know there was like Instacast and Pocketcast and Downcast. Many of the names that are still around today were around back then too. And, and so it was it was a very tough market to break into uh, i thought but i had these ideas for these audio features that that became smart speed and voice boost and and i i had built a prototype called castaway that like it was actually working like it worked surprisingly well without that much work like i i built it in maybe a week to to make the, the initial version of those features and it sounded great and i thought i should really build an app around this so i started you know what, I'm, I'm gonna do it so i started doing it and that became overcast and that launched uh, later on that year. That uh, or later on, it launched in twenty fourteen. I, I built it for about a year before I launched it, and I went through. I mean, I don't know to what degree you want to get into detail here, but I went through lots of different business models with Overcast. But I had I eventually found one that worked, <laughs> and and so that's where we are today. And that so I I launched Overcast. It I kind of I used my the lessons I learned from Instapaper and why Instapaper didn't succeed. One of the biggest reasons that I think it didn't succeed was that, you know, I started out Instapaper being this, this paid upfront app, but then all my competitors who had, who had like external funding to start them out, uh, they all went free upfront. Right. And they could figure out how to make money later. Right. Right. And, and honestly, I don't think any of them ever did. But <laughs> <laughs> they probably uh, sold to somebody, right? They did. They all, yeah, they all either shut down or sold. Um, but, uh, but they, 
they were, you know, because they were undercutting me on price, I lost so many people to them. Uh, people who would never even give my app a shot. Now, at the time what, that I launched Overcast, every other indie podcast app out there, they were all paid up front still. And it, it, I wasn't I was looking at them thinking like, well, you know, if I if I make mine free and figure out some other way to make money, maybe, you know, I'll sell some premium features in the app or something. If I can make it free up front, then I'm not competing with Instacast, Pocketcast, Downcast. Then I'm competing with Apple Podcasts, yeah. and at the time, um, Stitcher, which was very, very Stitcher was like alarmingly popular at that time. It was, it was, and it was a kind of weird proprietary lockdown podcast platform at that time, and so that was scary to me as a podcast fan that like this very lockdown platform was getting pretty big market share, and so I thought, you know, if I want to have any success in this market and protect the openness of it. The biggest reason Stitcher was getting market share was that it was free. Right. And it was heavily marketed. But it was it was free was the main thing. And all the other like good podcast apps or like all the all the indie ones that all the you know, nerds like us were using were all paid. And so I ha- I realized, okay, from a combination of that looking at the market like that and from my knowledge with Instapaper, I realized Overcast has to be free up front. It, no matter what I have to do to make that happen, it has to be free up front. So I launched with that. So you launched with it just straight up free. There was no business model at all at first. No, there was. It was just oh, okay. It, so the very first version, it was. It, it's always been free up front, and then there's always been some way in the app for me to make money otherwise. So the very first version, um, it would lock away some of the features, including smart speed and voice boost, behind a five dollar pay once in app purchase. Okay. And that was that was the business model for about the first year or so, and it it went fine. Uh, for the most part, the only major problem with that, though, is, as everyone knows, with any kind of pay once scheme, it's great for the first few months, uh, but then it falls off. And then you just your income falls off a cliff and just goes down from that point forward. And it's very hard to keep up user growth enough to keep that line going up over time. Right. It, everybody has to be new. Right. Exactly. And, and for a while, like Instapaper had that for a long time because the, the iPhone and then later iPad markets were growing so much that at that point still like so many people who were buying iPhones, it was their first iPhone. Right. So, so many of them it, it were new app store customers coming in the door every single day so that you could at the very beginning, you could have a pay once thing and it worked pretty well if you had like reasonable visibility or reasonable growth because there were so many new people coming in the door. But you know, a few years in that slowed down dramatically, of course, as it had to, as it reached saturation. Right now we're at the point where it's people aging into the ability to have an iPhone that they can buy apps. Right. So there's still like <laughs> right. new people coming in, but it's yeah, definitely a slower pace. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's nothing like it was before. And and there's also way more competition in the App Store now. Yeah. You know, it, it, there, I mean, there was a lot even even at the beginning, but it's, you know, now it's a whole other level of just <laughs> how many apps there are out there, how much how much money there is to be made and therefore how many people are very aggressively trying to grab whatever little piece of it they can. Um, and, you know, that that's there's like rampant copying and just tons of straight up competition out there. And yeah, it's, it's a tough market. And so the, the reason why overcast succeeded at the beginning there was because I was the new person undercutting everyone on price 
at, at zero <laughs> and that I, I had marketed my features pretty well. That, that was one thing I did want to like dive into a little bit is yeah. you, you did make quite a big splash uh, I, from what I gather on the initial launch. Part of that is you kind of had a following because you had these other apps. And I think at that point you already had ATP, though I don't know how big ATP was uh, as a podcast at that point. Yeah, um, it, I think it was a few months old at that point. It wasn't very big, okay. but it, it, it was it was not zero certainly. But you had a you you had a decent following at that point. Yeah, but I I feel like at least following you now, which I wasn't keeping up back then, you you do seem to be very intentional about how you market things, not with paid advertising where you're pouring into funnels and everything, but just in terms of like how you try to message things. Was that something you were taking lessons you learned from Instapaper and the magazine and bringing them into the launch of Overcast? A lot of it I actually learned from David at Tumblr. He was really good at that. And it took me a while to really pick up on and internalize a lot of that that style and that messaging. But he he had a really good sense of it and he was really good at it. And you know, so much of what we do is technical details or things that that most customers don't care about. Yeah, they might feel, but they're not going to. It's not going to uh, influence a purchasing decision necessarily. Right, or they just they might not appreciate why the thing that you did matters. Like you know, if you like, I upgraded to the new you know the new version of Metal for the graphics API. It's like, okay. What's yeah. that going to do for me in your note-taking app? <laughs> you the know, like feature that says uh, built entirely in Swift UI, you know. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, who cares? Like, your customers don't care. Right. <laughs> Developers find it interesting, but your customers don't care. So there's so much of what we do that that is not particularly, you know, useful to people to even know or care. I feel like if we have an opportunity, if we're doing something cool with our app, technically, like as a feature or as a detail, if there is some way that that's relevant to customers, that it could be made relevant to customers if possible, or that it could be brought to their attention how useful it is. I feel like we can benefit a lot from that and we often don't do it. So for instance, like when I was when I was, you know, working on the first version of Overcast, I, you know, two of the most important features to me were smart speed and voice boost. And, you know, smart speed reduces the length of silences. Well, most people are not going to notice if a silence is a little bit shorter if you do it right yeah yeah obviously if you do it right and it shocks me how many people still do a, a sloppy job of it but if you do it right you don't even notice and so i thought well this is this is a bit of a challenge here of marketing this feature like how do i have a feature that when it's done right no one notices how do i market that how do i show people that this feature even exists how do i tell them whether they should turn it on or not should it be on by default even and then once if they're using it how do i show them that it's benefiting them and so that kind of thinking that led me to things like giving it a marketable name and trademarking that name and then showing prominently in the ui huge buttons smart speed a little explanation voice boost a little explanation and when smart speed is on it shows you that little real-time display of what like x speed it's currently working at for the last you know second or two of audio all of that was for messaging reasons to, to be able to tell people here's this big feature that at least when I launched was like fairly exclusive to my app. Uh, and at least it was not well known in other apps. Um, and so here's this feature. 
it's 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 important to you for this reason that I'm going to like basically hit you over the head with in the UI and in the marketing copy. And then when it's on, you'll be able to see actual feedback of what it's doing and why it's helping you. And that's so that led to the real time speed display that led to the hours saved indicator in the settings screen. Yeah, like because all that was trying to message to people that this invisible feature is adding value to their life. But you have to show them how otherwise they'll never know. I I really like that. It it makes me think of um, I could be wrong on this, but my understanding is that the way like Apple structures their business uh, marketing is like really involved in product yes and actually like design and everything yes very and much so uh so many people me definitely included uh sometimes you know we build the thing and we're crafting this app for a long time and then we might give ourselves two weeks or a month or however long to do the marketing at the end as like all right now let's take all these features i made and figure out how how to like message them to people i like the idea of like the messaging also is is should be pushed into the design of your app um because honestly that's probably most of your customers that is the only way you're really interfacing with them oh totally um, most of them aren't following you on twitter or going to your website or anything like that yeah the vast majority of them don't know don't have any idea who i am they don't follow any of the channels any of the social media or anything like that like that's that's totally right i mean that's what like w- when i was making overcast the very first thing i did besides like once i once i made my little castaway prototype to show that the audio effects worked and then I realized, oh, I, sh- I should build a podcast app around these. The very next thing I did was I, I made a giant note uh, in, at that point, uh, task paper. And I wrote down all my big competitors. And I went to the app store and I took all their screenshots. I copied them. I made a folder of like all the, all the competitors out there, how their screens looked. And I made a big note of what features they had, what features I thought they didn't have, what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses. And then I, and this was before I made the app. I just had, you know, the audio prototype. And then I, I made like, I made basically a little bulleted list of like, what am I going to focus on with Overcast? And I knew from both being a podcast listener for many years at that point and using some of these apps myself and just from then doing this market research, I knew like, okay, here's some holes in the market. Here's some areas where I'm probably not going to be able to compete very well because I don't have, you know, a, a staff or the resources of, or this, you know, certain kinds of talent these other companies have. Uh, and then here's areas that I think are underserved. Things like the audio effects and things like I, I had, you know, early, a very early Twitter social feature. Um, I thought I could do playlists better than everyone else. Um, and it's, it's up to you whether you think I actually am or have, <laughs> but certainly to my own, um, you know, taste, <laughs> my own preferences and, and priorities. Um, so I, I made this list of like marketable features, basically, and ways I can fit into the market in a way that might stand out. I decided right then early on about about it being free. So I had to also come up with, okay, how do I make features that can be set aside as premium features that then will fund the development of the app if, if it's going to be free up front? Uh, and, and, you know, the server side work, all that stuff. I, so I did all that knowing from the beginning these marketing concerns, basically, of you know, right. how I'm going to fit into the market. What are my marketable features? What do I need to focus on? Where am I going to try to slot myself into this already crowded space in areas that are being underserved by the other apps that are in it? Uh, and that, I think, really was very important for me. I, I didn't do any of those like formal 
you know, planning or studies or anything for Instapaper, um, in part because it was moving so fast and in part because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> well, and you, there was no apps to go get screenshots of and compare to. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like what Instapaper was doing was was fairly unique when it came out. Um, and so, I, yeah, it was it was a different approach, I guess. But yeah, with Overcast and, and these days, you know, everything is everything has been done before. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there's almost nothing are, totally unique. Yeah, chances are any app you want to make, there's probably some similar apps out there. If not, you might need to be concerned. <laughs> like it's if you if you if you can't find any app that does what your app that what your app idea does, like you might be onto something big, or there might be no market for it. <laughs> it's it's up to you to take that risk. Yeah, or you might have to do all the work to like convince people that this is a market that matters. Right, exactly. But yeah, certainly like, you know, moving into moving into my, you know, very creative market, I did have to really think about that marketing stuff from day one. And and I and I had to think about like how how am I gonna get this out there? What are people how it kind of visualize like before before your app's even out there, like visualize somebody like Max Story is writing about it and comparing it to the other apps in the space. Right. Like, all right, well, how are they gonna compare this? What you know, if if I'm lucky enough to get press for this thing I'm gonna do how is it going to compare? Why would somebody choose my app over the things out there? And there are reasons you could make. Like, I'm not saying this to discourage people. Like, you can figure out what those reasons might be and then do them. <laughs> but but you, it's really nice to have that plan from the start. Like you were talking about uh, earlier, app development is a million tiny decisions. And at each one of those decisions, you know, you you have to decide what, you know, what is the trade-off here? What matters? If you've pre-decided this is my marketing plan. This is the target audience I'm going for, yada, yada. That can all feed into every single one of those little decisions that you make, which might slowly like guide your app towards something that's even more targeted towards, you know, a specific group of people. Oh, totally. I mean, like, like one of the decisions I made early on was again, like I was not really targeting the power user apps like pocket cast downcast. I was not targeting them. I was really trying to make sure that something out there was going to help take over podcasts so that Stitcher wouldn't, basically. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was I was so afraid of that of that of the lockdown thing that they were doing back then, um, and so I was like, that's why I designed the app with simplicity for regular people as a goal. Even though I'm a nerd, and even though I used like before before I used uh, Overcast, I was using Downcast, and Downcast is a very like power user nerdy app. It's great. Uh, just filled with options, like, so many options and preferences and everything. Um, but I, I, tr- I wasn't trying to make that because I was afraid that most, most like you know, less nerdy people out there wouldn't go for that, and that wouldn't achieve my goal of diversifying this marketplace so that people like Stitcher couldn't take it over. Um, and so, simplicity was like a very, very early goal that. I knew, first of all, I, I didn't think the indie apps were serving it very well because that honestly they weren't. Um, and then secondly, and now they are honestly like now the, the indie podcast app scene now is so much bigger and better than it was back then. Uh, but but certainly at the time it was very it was just very nerdy and all paid up front. And so for me to want to appeal to the mass market, it had to be free and simple. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, leading up to the launch, uh, we didn't mention it, but you did like, (laughs) this isn't really a lesson most people can probably take and run with, but you actually announced uh, Overcast on stage at uh, XOXO, right? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Which 
it's pretty legit like to have to have been able to experience that was probably cool you were sort of doing a mini version of a product reveal that we've watched a million times from these big companies that was a lot of fun i'm i'm very fortunate to have had the chance to do that um and, and part of it was just luck of timing that they like they happened to ask me to speak there at a time when this was coming together um they also I, I am not very good at preparing conference talks. Uh, it's one of the reasons I don't really do them anymore um, is that I would get massively stressed out preparing for a talk, um, not to give the talk. I'm totally fine with public speaking. I would get stressed out from like the homework aspect of it. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm always, you know, I'm a slacker who never did my homework. It's due dates. And yeah, it's like I have to do this big school project basically. And I would get so stressed out that like I'm not working on it enough or it's not going to be good enough. And then the other people's projects are going to look better than my project. Like it, it, it was all that stress from, from school. That's, that's me every time I give a conference talk. And this was a way for me to kind of get like a free topic for one without having to do a lot of like original research <laughs> and stuff for right. it. And who's going to call you out? Right. Yeah. And I couldn't, I, you know, I didn't have to like prepare a really complicated slide deck because like, right. you know, I, I, I was, I was lucky to have a, a, a you know, a brief time on, on the tech conference circuit and everyone else on that circuit always had such nice presentations, like really polished and well-designed slides and really well-written and well-rehearsed. And I was just never that polished. And so it, it, this was useful to, <laughs> for me to like have kind of like, <laughs> uh, a, you know, a topic I could just talk about without worrying too much about like all the the the, the polished details because i knew it would be interesting to the crowd otherwise but it was funny like I, it actually barely came together i was i i had finalized the trademark negotiation to use the name overcast like a day before i gave the talk from oh, wow. my hotel in portland at xoxo <laughs> what was the contingency plan was there a contingency plan if you didn't get it in time, I, I mean, I had I had some other names that I could have swapped in, but I they they were all terrible names. Overcast was by far the best one I'd come up with, and that's why like I, I it had taken me a few months to like negotiate through some like a, a previous use that I had to like negotiate through, but it was I, I got it through and it was totally worth it. <laughs> that's awesome. You even have a miniature version of the uh, like product release story where you're getting something in at the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That's awesome. So once you did launch, um, was it pretty successful right away? It, it pretty much was. Yeah. I mean, again, like obviously, you know, I had some advantages that I, I had an existing audience by that point, as you mentioned. But right. Uh, but it really did take off pretty quickly. It was it was profitable from day one um, because it, just, you know, it, it had that in-app purchase. And I was actually, I was very concerned about the optics of that. I, I really didn't want to be like the well-known developer who comes into a space and crushes these indie apps. Because mm. that was not my, that was not my intention at all. Like, you know, all the apps that were paid up front, I knew that I would probably take some business from them. And I wanted to do it in a way that they could do the same thing if they wanted to. You know, I wanted to be very sensitive to like, I'm not, I don't want to kill anyone's business except at the time Stitcher, <laughs> but <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> yeah, they, the whole locking down podcast feeds into their own ecosystem thing, that, that really offended me. On, Luckily, on that's never happening uh, anymore, no, of right? of course uh, not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, listeners, uh, we're literally recording this the day of the, uh, the most recent <laughs> Apple keynote where Apple announced podcast subscriptions, which... Uh, I'll let, obviously we won't get into, and I'm very excited about the next ATP uh, because, 
I'm sure you have lots of Me thoughts. Me too. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, I'm curious to see how that goes. So yeah, that's yeah, <laughs> that's a little bit of an undercurrent here, but uh, yes. but you've held them off for for at least a while. It's it's been a good run for a pretty good while of uh, independent podcast apps all running off of this kind of amazing open RSS based ecosystem. Yeah, and honestly, I, I mean the the tldr version of what i'm thinking so far is is i think will be fine but um anyway but yeah so like i i i wanted to compete fairly um and so i i was it was important to me that overcast was like self-funded and profitable from day one it wasn't like a vc coming in and going i don't need to make money and just crushing everybody and then taking advantage of that monopoly yeah, you know, I didn't want to like, you know, Walmart the whole industry around yeah. me. Like I wanted to I wanted to actually like, you know, play fair and like, okay, well, you know, I I'm going to be self-funded just like all of they all of them are slash were. Uh, and I'm going to, you know, do a, a different business structure here where I'm going to have the app be free and then pay for premium stuff in the, inside the app, but you know, everyone could do that if they wanted to. And eventually they all did. I mean, because it made sense like I I think the the market for paid up front apps is all but gone. I, I think very few apps can be paid up front now and have it and have it succeed for them um, because outside of like the hobbyist uh, scene. Yeah. Yeah. But like for the most part, like especially if, you, if you're trying to get like average people to install your app, it, it has to be free up front. And, and I think there I think people are largely forgiving of pretty much any way you want to make money inside the app after that point. Like n- nothing is off the table. Nothing is too you know, too offensive or taboo or, or, you know, like just inappropriate for people. Like if you want to put ads in your app, fine. No one cares. If you want to put in app purchases for premium features, fine. If you want to have a subscription, fine. Like at this point, everything goes and it's good because I've tried them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you have gone through a couple, uh, different business models. So it started out with free with an in-app purchase, one time in-app purchase. What was the next stepping stone then? So, yeah, so the, the main issue at first was, all right, well, the, you know, all the people who bought it, then I was not making any more money from them ever again. Right. And then meanwhile, you know, I'm running servers that, that are backing the app and you know, I'm trying to develop it further. So having your revenue be going down constantly is no good. So I tried a couple things over, over the, the years following that. Uh, I tried, uh, at first I tried basically a patronage model where you would, you would pay me a non-auto-renewing just interval based subscription of you know you're buying one year of patronage and at the end of it it would just stop and you could go pay it again if you wanted to (laughs) and i tried you know various premium features being locked behind that kind of thing i tried nothing being behind it just for goodwill the kind of like a tip jar model of just you know give me money if you feel like it and you want to support development um eventually i came up with um a premium subscription that would uh, allow you to upload files to my servers and and like have you be able to play your own files basically so if you were like you know wanting to listen to something in the app that wasn't a published podcast maybe upload your own audiobooks your own lecture recordings or whatever you know you could have that and then i also uh, added ads to the app now the first version of the ads was actually google ads like just like what everyone else does you know google the the ad mob sdk that everyone uses i added those for a brief time they crushed my soul and ballooned up my app with stuff I hated, looked like hell, and didn't make that much money. And so I thought, okay, well, I, I, I'm not loving how this is going. 
And so I had a crazy idea. I'm like, you know, what if I sell ads in the app that I would just sell myself, just 100% native view in the app. I would just sell them for, you know, at that point, like the Google ads were making so little money that I was like, if I, if I just sell a few of these a month, I'll make close enough to what Google's paying me and it'll be so much, you know, more compatible with my conscience and soul. Yeah. And <laughs> so, like, yeah, it'll like fit into the app. It'll be, yeah. Won't have all the tracking and everything that you have zero control over. Yeah. Cause like, you know, the Google ads, it, they were garbage. Like they, I mean, I don't know if they're better now. This was, this was a good, probably three or four years ago now. Um, but they were just terrible. And I hated having to check that check the box saying I use the IDFA, and I hated. And this was before GDPR, and this was before sure, app tracking yeah. transparency. So like, it, it's it's significantly harder now because you know now your burden is higher when you when you do those things. But still, you know, I, I hated having to do that, and the quality of the ads was was really low because I was not giving Google all people's data. And and whenever there was, you know, there's different options you can set for, you know, different types of data you're going to pass them, different types of ads that you're willing to have. I remember at, at some point, um, somebody pointed out to me that, like, I was running ads for some casino or something, like some, you know, pretty, pretty kind of low rent ads. And you could go into Google's panel and you could turn off certain categories you didn't want. Like, I turned off, like, the guns one and stuff like that. Right. And Wait, there was a, there was a guns topic for Google ads? Oh, yeah. Oh my goodness! Yeah, one time somebody screenshotted like there was an ad for a gun thing, and some and a customer screenshotted and it was like, "Are you? Do you want to be advertising in this?" And I was like, "Nope, sorry." Wow! <laughs> and Man. but you can go in, you can turn off like guns, drugs, like all sort, all these like categories that like you probably don't want to be advertising in a general purpose app. Yeah. And and when I turned off all the ones that were really offensive, the uh, dollar rate that I was getting every day <laughs> dropped so low, and I was like, "You got to be kidding me!" Like that's where all the money's coming from is all this like stuff I really don't want. I mean. <laughs> There's a reason that uh, at the end of every article on well-established newspapers that <laughs> ha- care about their brand is like just the grossest image that you could possibly imagine or, or yeah, right. the most offensive thing that they can get you to like attract your eyeballs, I guess. Yeah, because it, it works and it brings in money. Uh, and, yeah. and, when you, and when you turn off, like if you try to advertise only like good, tasteful stuff in non-annoying, tasteful ways... Uh, it turns out that makes a lot less money with with a lot of you know a lot of ad inventory, which is very unfortunate. But that's that's true. Well, if if it's not very targeted, so yes, in your case, you have this advantage of you know exactly who your audience is. It's people who care about podcasts, right? Um, in like Instagram's case, I've I'm not really a heavy Instagram user, but. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say they actually like the ads in Instagram. I actually like the ads in Instagram. Yeah. And I imagine that's, they're obviously getting good rates. I don't think Instagram's, you know, shying away from uh, whatever makes them the most money. But I have to imagine that them being as aggressively targeted as they are is, is part of what makes that business uh, model work better. Oh yeah, like as creepy as Facebook is as a company, and I and I I don't have a lot of respect for them as as a company, like morally. But I do also admit that Instagram ads are scarily targeted. Well, and <laughs> I have bought like you know shirts and stuff that like wow, I actually do want that shirt. How did you know? <laughs> it is kind of it is kind of kind of like scary. And they know not to show you guns right. or casino uh, ads or whatever because 
you're not you're not the person that's going to click on that so like it would be a waste of their time to do that exactly so anyway so i was running these google ads they were making terrible money and so i thought all right let me just try to make my own ads that i could sell to whoever i figured i could sell them to app developers uh you know i i could sell them to like you know squarespace and linode and like you know all like our podcast sponsors i was like okay so it was more open-ended at first yeah like because the the ad units i built into the into the app could support um either a podcast view so they would pop up the view of any podcast that i that i knew about and you could subscribe to it so it could be an ad for a podcast or it could be an ad for a website or a or an app store page it would open up you know this whatever the store kit presentation controller thing is that you can open up app views in, in your app. Right. And I figured it's, I could have like an affiliate code in there to make some little bit of money there. And I could, or I could, you know, put in other people's code if they had one and you know, that, then I just charge for the ad appropriately or whatever the case may be. So I, I built this whole ad system to like, all right, let me get, get rid of Google's ad because they're making me no money and they're crushing my soul. And so I'll make my own little tasteful ads here and I'll build in native support for podcasts and apps and websites and I'll see who buys them. And I put them out there and within a few weeks, not only was I sold out, which made way more money than the Google ads, but it also became clear after a few weeks that by far the people who most wanted to buy ads were ads for podcasts. Like in in the native, the native view that would pop up for like, here's a podcast you might want to listen to it, pop it up and you could tap subscribe in one click. Well, at the time, at least, now there's a few others who do it, but at the time, there was no other podcast app that would allow you to buy an ad to promote your podcast natively in the app. You know, you could you could buy audience like on Facebook somehow, but that's all indirect. Whereas if you're buying an ad in a podcast app, it's one tap to subscribe to the podcast right there. Right. It's fully native. And that's 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 worth way more to uh, to an advertiser who's advertising a podcast than buying like, you know, a Facebook or Google ad. So, and because at the time, no one else offered that. And even now, a few apps have done it since then, but I think I'm still the biggest who does it. Um, it, 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 It had become so obvious at that point that like, I didn't even need to accept ads for apps or websites past the first month because everyone wanted them for podcasts. At the time, did you have like better tracking since it's actually happening in your app. You could know in a uh, anonymous way, like how many people were subscribing directly from this ad. So I, from the very beginning, all ads tracked three things, total views, total taps, total subscriptions. And that's it. (laughs) And it's great because, you know, occasionally people will ask me, Oh, do you, do you have like demographic information? And I can honestly say, Nope, sorry. And most of the time they're like, okay, like it's not, we don't actually need it most of the time. (laughs) Right. You know, I, I, (laughs) I, I will occasionally get an ad for somebody who, who you know, they want to advertise only to a certain country or to a certain language. And at mm. some point, I'm probably going to have to tackle those because the demand is so high for that. Right. That uh, makes and that, sense. that makes sense. You know, like if you if you if you're advertising like a German podcast, I have German listeners or German users of the app. But, the, but, you know, most people using the app are not speaking German. So it's wasteful for a German ad buyer to buy an ad where it's going to be shown, you know, to 80 percent English speakers. Right. Or whatever the number might be. Um, so I, I do see the argument for having targeting like that. But I don't think I'm ever going to actually get much more precise or demographic based than anything like that. In part because I neither have nor want that data. Um, but also in part because, frankly, the ad system is doing really well as it is. And I don't really want to touch it. 
Yeah, he's like, you got something working, don't touch it. <laughs> yeah, the machine's running. Don't uh, don't do anything to make it stop. Exactly. And and so I finally have this this amazing business model that works really well for my app and doesn't have any major like, you know, moral or ethical downsides. Like it just works really nicely and everyone seems happy with it. You know, I got a lot of repeat buyers, so I know it's working for them. Like I like I know that they're getting their value out of the ads. Uh, and I'm just, I'm so happy to have finally found it's like a business model that is sustainable. So yeah, so anyway, so the current business model is I have these ads that are only for other podcasts and that way no one really cares about the ads and you can still buy the premium subscription that will allow you to do the file uploads. And if you want, you can hide those ads, but I keep them on because I don't care because they're not, they're not intrusive. Like if you're listening to a podcast and at the bottom of the app, there's an ad for another podcast. No one seems to care about that. <laughs> like really, it's not, it's not offensive. Yeah. It's, it's not offensive. It feels just part of the app and it fits with yeah. the design of the app. Cause it's actually made, you know, explicitly for this app. It's not just a box. That's a window into a whole nother world. Right. And, and like, and, I think my ads are are pretty clearly uncreepy. Like it, you're never gonna see, you know, oh, you browsed this product on Amazon yesterday, and now you're, <laughs> you're never gonna see it pop up in my ad for a podcast in my podcast app. Like that's because it, what's great about the system is that I do almost no targeting whatsoever. The literally the only targeting I do is for category of podcast that you listen to because you know when you go to the itunes or slash apple podcast now they've always had these like top level categories you know technology business sports you know whatever and so every podcast out there almost every podcast out there self-identifies in their rss feed into one of those categories so i don't even have to go around trying to categorize millions of podcasts because i couldn't do that obviously podcasts categorize themselves into these categories and so I offer people the ability to buy ads that will show to people who subscribe to podcasts in each one of these categories. So if you subscribe to any podcast that identifies itself as technology, then in your rotation of the ad, you'll see will be every technology ad. It's that simple. I don't need to know who you are. I couldn't care less who you are. I don't want to know who you are. (laughs) I don't want the liability of that information. Exactly. Yeah. Like earlier, earlier today, actually, I was running a script and I was uh, I started clearing out old email addresses for people that I have for accounts that are that have been idle for like for over a year. And I thought, I don't need to keep this. This is a liability. Like, why do I need someone's personal information that for an account that they've abandoned? I, I actually want to actively be deleting these like as, as I don't need them anymore because the last thing I want is personal information that is not essential to my business. Um, right. And so that's like, it's, it's wonderful to have a business where I don't need that and don't want that and actively want to get rid of it. <laughs> and the business is not suffering as a result. It really is like awesome. Cause I, you've talked about on uh, under the radar, your podcast with David Smith, how, like the advertising model is sort of this beautiful thing where it's like you're incentivized for them to, for uh, users to just use the app. There's no like mm-hmm. you're trying to drive them down these certain lanes or make them behave in certain ways. It's just like the more they use the app, the more money you make. Like it's this clean, you know, model. But the the thing that always feels gross is that you have to pull in some third party system uh, to 
to serve those ads up because it's so complicated to set up a network, but you've managed to figure out <laughs> the setting up a network part specifically for your app. And it just feels like this, it's not a flywheel. I don't know what you call that business model, but it just feels really natural, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's natural in the sense that it took me like, you know, six years to find it or whatever, but well, I did right. actually find it. <laughs> yeah. Good but yeah, point. it was, but, and, and I recognize too that, you know, not everybody can do this for every app. And that's why I hope, you know, I've, I've actually, I've talked to, you know, to underscore David Smith about this a, a lot. Um, he, he does all sorts of apps as, as you know, and, and he used Apple's iAd system before, and he's used every ad system since, you know, all the, everything else. And he actually misses iAd because even though it didn't always make as much money as the other ones, it always made enough and it was so much better to use. Right. It was so much easier and nicer and more privacy conscious and everything. I hope that there is something like that in the future. Like I, I hope Apple brings back iAd with like a stronger push behind it. Um, maybe, maybe in a slightly different form if they have to, to make it work. But I hope that, you know, right now, the reason why all these terrible ad networks are in all these different apps is because that's the best way to monetize most apps. And it's sad yeah. that that's the case, but it's true. And when somebody says like, well, I know these ads are, are kind of rough, but it's my only option. It's hard to argue against that if you can't prevent, can't prevent, present them something that's better. You know, if, 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 the, if, that, if that really is their only option, well, that's, that's kind of a market failure at that point or a platform failure. So I hope that Apple brings something to the table there that allows people to monetize their apps en masse in a way that is competitive with these ad networks. Um, and, and, you know, the app tra- tracking transparency stuff, I think is, it's a part of the solution maybe, but I don't think it's going to be the final fix to this problem. Like I, I, it's certainly not, you know, it, you're, they're going to make ads probably less effective and possibly less profitable in the short term. Hopefully in the long term things get better, but I think it's going to take more than just that to do it. Right. Ultimately, I, I hope long term, I hope that there are better ways that are less slimy and have fewer compromises for anyone out there to monetize an app of any size. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of phrasing that is like, there are models that work, but, uh, and I like to their credit, obviously there's way more options than there used to be. Not necessarily in terms of ads, but just in terms of ways to monetize an app on the store. Yeah. Um, but that, that free model with ads, feels like there's not a good clean way and i i feel like i've heard of ones on web that sort of fit that mold but i don't know of any on on ios currently anyway that uh that seem to be like extremely privacy focused and you you sort of have to have the reputation of a big company that can stand behind that that privacy statement yeah it'll be interesting it it, that seems like uh modern apple would have a much better time attempting something than uh than Apple at the time of iAd when it comes to like services. <laughs> that, that's definitely an area where they've improved since. I think the, the the major risk though is that if Apple doesn't do it, like if Apple themselves, you know, doesn't or can't make something compelling in, in this area instead, I think the App Store policies around in-app purchase restrictions and like how how under how many conditions you have to use Apple's system for in-app purchase, I think that's going to ultimately 
limit or prevent a lot of otherwise possibly good ideas from getting off the ground. So for instance, there's all sorts of stuff going around now about like using micropayments that are that are possibly based on blockchain stuff and whatever. And I don't understand most of it to be honest. But like there are so many different monetization schemes that could be used, many of which will never see the light of day on iOS and therefore most of the world because Apple doesn't allow them or right. it, it it lives kind of on the edge of the interpretation of that rule. And so no developer would ever actually do it because it would be such a risk that Apple would come down with the ban hammer like later down the road. It would just be too risky to take on. And, and I, this is one of the reasons why I hope long term that Apple is forced to let apps do whatever they want for payment inside the app and actually compete on a level playing field and actually say, all right, well, you know, if they're going to offer their in-app purchase system, we can use it if we want to, or we can do our own thing if we want to, and they can compete with their merits. Like they have this amazing system integration. They have this amazing, you know, credit card account that everyone maintains and it's super easy to pay with for overcast. If Apple tomorrow dropped through the in-app purchase restriction and would allow me to build in my own payment system into overcast, I wouldn't do it because I don't, want my own payment system in overcast and theirs works good theirs works well enough right for my you know subscription thing uh it works fine i don't sell my ads through that because i think i'm actually not even allowed to <laughs> yeah probably not <laughs> <laughs> but uh but you know right now they, they have the system where if you involve money at all you have to give them 30 percent basically Right. Unless you're a physical store or one right. of the There's other these, dozens right. of uh, carve outs for giant companies. All these exceptions. But like for the most part, if you want to, you know, if you want to have your app monetized, you're going to have to give Apple 30 percent and you're going to have to use their system to do it. And if your model can't afford that 30 percent or if their system can't do what you want to do with your model, uh, you're out of luck and, or you can use advertising which Apple takes no percent of because they can't. Right. And everyone just picks that because it's there and it's easy and it, you know, with a million asterisks, it works. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. And so I hope there are more options that come around. Um, but I, ultimately, I think it's going to take Apple dropping that rule for many of the possibly best ideas or ideas with the best chance of succeeding for them to even see the light of day. Yeah. That makes sense. It's interesting to think about the fact that like their I never thought of their rules as pushing for everything being ad based um, that can. Oh, they a thousand percent do. Yeah. Like Facebook doesn't pay Apple a third of their all their revenue. Google doesn't pay Apple a third of all their revenue. <laughs> like they make their money from ads. <laughs> right. But neither of those went with that business model because of because of Apple's, you know, system or whatever. That was already kind of what their business model was. Right, yeah. Yeah, but still, you know, like when I see the ad for the shirt on Instagram, somebody paid for that ad and then I go buy the shirt and Apple really has none of that. Yeah, that is true. And you probably pay on your phone. It's just yeah. that it bumps you out to Safari. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's one of those funny things where it's like, I feel like I inherently will think the trust of knowing that your payments are going through Apple's system is a major part of why people feel comfortable paying for things on their phone. And that's a big part of the app store or whatever. But then it's like, every, like Amazon is a massive company. All these Shopify companies, they're all, well, most of them are using like Stripe or something like that. Right. But each individual, one of those stores isn't some major brand that has all this trust. People just 
generally speaking, trust paying for things online nowadays. It kind of feels like a disingenuous argument to say that uh, people will start spending less on apps if, you know, the little button says Stripe or PayPal instead of uh, Apple Pay. Well, not Apple Pay, but instead of using the native uh, dialogue. Oh, yeah. I mean, the argument holds no water at all. Once you once you see like quite how much commerce happens through phones that is not going through Apple today and it's fine. Right. Um, and, and, and the distinction between Apple pay and in-app purchase is a distinction that most people don't make. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it's yeah, like, and in fact, earlier today, I literally bought a new swimsuit from an Instagram ad <laughs> and I, I kicked it out to Safari just so I could use Apple pay. And, <laughs> and, and so Apple made, you know, whatever 0.02%, whatever their, yeah. their kick is on that. They made that on that sale. Um, but, you know, I didn't hesitate at all. It was some site I'd never bought from before, uh, but I didn't hesitate at all. I was confident, okay, well, it's probably going to be okay. And if it's not, well, credit cards actually have really good fraud protection. Yeah, so, exactly. You know, like, that, yeah, that argument holds no water whatsoever. Now, it is convenient. And that's why, like, for Overcast... Again, I would keep using Apple's system uh, because I there is value in all the built-in accounts that already have their credit cards and everything, and ha- you know all the things you don't have to deal with when you're when you have an when you have the net purchase system. Like Apple does bring value to the table there, but not to such a absolute and all-encompassing way that they need to require themselves to be the only option in all these different circumstances. Right. Yeah, that, exactly. That's just straight up rent seeking. And that, and that's that I think I don't think they're ever going to change that behavior on their own. But I think if, if like regulation ever were to come into effect, that would change that behavior for them. I think it would be overall good for the entire economy, including Apple. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be, uh, it'll be interesting to see <laughs> how the next couple of years yeah. go. There's certainly, uh, <laughs> things happening across all of tech and so it's been nice uh you know as somebody who's makes little enough money to be in the small developer program i appreciate all this weird pressure that they've had that's given all sorts of nice benefits to me as they're trying to like make the argument that they're really good platform for developers and uh that alone is also evidence i think that there's a lot more they could do if they had competition oh yeah because like they they did like nothing on this front for right. you know 11 years <laughs> and then all of a sudden once there's like intense pressure they like flip a couple of switches and now there's like significant changes <laughs> yeah yeah so I, we'll see I, I i hope this gets better over time and i think i think in the long term i think it will uh it just might be a little bit bumpy on on the way there so i guess i guess i should probably wrap up let's see uh I don't think I left anything on the table for for Overcast itself. I mean, we could talk for 10 hours. Well, I mean, I could, but (laughs) I do, I guess, have to edit this. Yeah, I man, I can't imagine how much time you spend editing ATP every single week. Someday I'm going to make an editor. I shouldn't, (laughs) but someday I will. I hate it whenever you tease that because... uh, I haven't started. (laughs) You haven't started? Is that what you said? No, I said I haven't started. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) No, but like, you know, because a, a podcast editor is an app that I spend a large amount of time in right and i currently use logic for that purpose i've used it for a number of years now but logic is not made for that not even close and it never stops reminding you of that (laughs) if if you're using logic to edit podcasts like it is and and it's unfortunate because i know there are other apps to do it 
and they don't fit my patterns very well. Yeah. And, and you know, as like to our earlier discussion, like it just doesn't fit the way I want it. I want things to work in, in some pretty important key ways uh, with everything else out there. And so I still use logic, but logic is a music composition program. It, it is not at all a podcast editing program. And so there's just so much friction that it brings to the table that you can't turn off or, or avoid. And, there are so many little things that it could change if it was trying to be a podcast editing program that would make my workflow so much nicer and better. Right. And it just will never change those things in all likelihood. So yeah, I've always been tempted to write an editor, but I think it would be, I think I want to have written an editor. I don't <laughs> want to write an editor. And I think the market for such a thing would be, would be so small that it would be uh, it would be a, a basically a giant uh, failure i think yeah it would be a uh, very different demographic than uh, <laughs> than overcast <laughs> oh sure yeah but and like 20 times the work well probably more than probably more yeah yeah if i'm honest like it, like cuz it would be i mean if i wanted to write something that would only be useful to me even that would probably take a year at least and but if I like the problem with you know once you start making a tool for pros and their workflows, first of all, it's very hard to get pros to switch their workflows, even if your tool is better. Oh yeah, you know, ask that you know, ask anybody who makes Photoshop competitors. Like there's there's some <laughs> great apps. You know, Acorn is a fantastic app. Pixelmator is a fantastic app. How many people switch away from Photoshop to those apps? Not as many as who probably should. Because people have their workflows, you know, stuck in their heads. Yeah. Right. I shouldn't be using logic. I should be using something else. I'm not because my workflow is stuck in my head. And if I were to make my own editor, it would work a lot like logic. Just right. better in these other ways for podcast editing. Slim down and a bunch of little uh, like shortcuts uh, right. for yeah. your use cases and not for mixing a thousand, you know, loops together or whatever it is that most people are using logic for. Exactly. And it would be the perfect app for like one to three people and I, it, and I would have spent you know two years making it <laughs> so yeah that's that's probably not going to happen but someday it, it's it's always going to be like in the back of my mind like well you know if i had to stop working on overcast for some reason like if someone you know backed up a truck of money and bought it from me or something and i couldn't work on it anymore or if apple kills my business with their new thing you know <laughs> if somehow i had to stop working on overcast but i could still do podcasts what would i work on and I don't, I don't currently have a definitive answer to that question, um, but I think an editor would be high on the list, even though, again, I, I shouldn't work on yeah. it for lots of reasons, but I think I would probably attempt it anyway. That's me. I, I want to make a, like, After Effects for the iPad. Right. Not that I think I would be any good at it, but it's like this <laughs> thing where I'm like, man, if I, like, retired, my retirement would be sitting near a beach, uh, but not on the beach, and building a like motion graphics app for the iPad, which I don't know what that says about me, but uh. <laughs> as I literally sit near, but not on a beach making a <laughs> podcast, you know, program, I, I, I think I understand a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. So I guess, I guess we'll, we'll wrap things up here with the, uh, the question I ask everybody, which is uh, what's a person or people out there that have inspired you that you recommend others check out. So I'm going to go uh, a, a normal direction with this and a little bit different direction with this. So the normal okay. direction is, Brent Simmons. Ah, yes. You probably, I'm sure you know him. You should get him on here at some point. Brent is a longtime Apple platform developer, and he's really good. And what I like about Brent is that he's very considered with what he does. He's able to look at things very rationally and with a strong point of view 
that is very well informed by years of experience and wisdom. And I, I always really enjoy paying attention to what people who are a little bit older than me say, because they have more experience than me and they usually have significantly more wisdom than me. <laughs> and I learn so much. Like some of my favorite podcasts to listen to are podcasts from like, you know, Merlin Mann and John Roderick and, and you know, people who were like a little bit older than me um, because I pick up so much value from that, you know, as, as they talk about, you know, the, the parts of their life that they're in, I might be, you know, five or 10 years away from those parts of my life. And so it's nice to kind of have like, you know, the wisdom of people who are there so I can try to save as much as, as I can now and, and apply it, you know, when I get there or make decisions or changes now with their wisdom for like things that they would have wanted to do differently or whatever, like make those changes in my life now. So I don't face similar problems or so I face different problems at least. Um, yeah. And so I, I love like, you know, Brent Simmons is great for that on, on the development side. I love Merlin and, and John Roderick for that on the podcast side. Um, so that's, that's a huge thing for me is like people who are a little bit older than me, who are, who are wise and who share their, their life experience with me. I, I get a lot of value out of that. That I, I've said it before on this podcast uh, multiple times, definitely to David, but that was what under the radar uh, your podcast with David was for me. I mean, it was like, Oh, that's great. Thank you. Probably the most impactful single podcast uh, I've ever listened to. And that one I did go through and listen to the whole back catalog, but I was very new to all of Apple development whenever I started listening to that. And I just like binged the entire thing leading up to the launch of my, my first app and like the amount of institutional knowledge that it, exactly what you're saying. It's like, you just, you're just sort of casually talking about your experience that you've had, but you've lived through all this stuff. And I got to just right. glean all this like institutional knowledge from you that so many times I would run into a small thing and go, Oh, I know what this is, you know, in app store connect or dealing with a rejection or whatever massively helpful and so yeah i that's it i never i didn't think of it in in those exact terms before but like somebody who's a little ahead of you on this path there's so much you can learn from them like specifically a little bit ahead of you versus somebody who's already like way ahead of you a titan of industry or whatever i guess that's what like mentorship would be in a normal personable yeah, right. personal relationship <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> if i like work with people yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly and yeah and uh, underscore is great too like like i think my favorite thing about doing that show is just that i get to talk to underscore for like an hour a week and and we, you know about half the conversation is on the show about half the conversation is you know us you know bsing with each other afterwards um and it's just it's nice not only is he a friend of mine but it's just nice to talk to another developer for a little while and and he he has such varied and and broad perspectives on things that i don't because he has this this broad catalog of apps that he makes and, and has made and you know i i'm more of like you know the app monogamist you know i've had this you know, one app for five years or whatever you know at a time and and so i get a lot of value and wisdom out of out of david um so yeah so that's that's one and then kind of building on that um one of the areas that i ignored for far too long and then got into recently because Merlin kept talking about how his body started losing symmetry at a certain age <laughs> and things started breaking. Um, I started caring about fitness 
and I'm not like super super into it. I I I don't really have the the personality to get super hardcore into it, but I do I have exercised more regularly for the last 5 years than I ever have for the whole, you know, 33 and a half years preceding that. And so I I now care about health and fitness in a in a small to medium sized way. And as I am you know, almost 39, that matters more and more and it's going to keep mattering more and more and and if i if i wasn't starting it these last few years i think you know the next 10 years would be would be a pretty big wake up call for me <laughs> and so yeah. it's kind of like saving for retirement it's like the best time to start saving for retirement is yesterday like it's right. not you know as soon as possible and you know the the best time to get into uh, some you know basic health and fitness stuff is is as soon as possible um, cause it, you know, it will become harder if I, if I wait. So I started getting to that and, um, and part of that was inspired by, you know, the wise people I follow. And, uh, I also, I really appreciate, um, many people in this business, many of whom are just, you know, personal friends, you know, trainers, stuff like that. But, um, one that everyone can benefit from who is available worldwide is the wonderful writings of Casey Johnston. Oh yeah. Uh, she writes a column called a swole woman at vice. And uh, on Instagram and, and other places. And what I like about her style is not only is she a great writer, just period. Um, and, and in fact, tech people, you might know her from uh, she, she was one of the people who really instigated the like MacBook Air butterfly yeah. keyboard is terrible <laughs> things. Like she wrote this big article that got tons of attention uh, a few years back and was was instrumental in like getting attention on that issue. Um, but anyway, so she has this whole like fitness writing gig also. And what I like about it is that it's very human and, and humane in the sense that, like, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, consider fitness and, like, body weight to be these like, you're supposed to exercise to lose weight and you're supposed to keep your weight below the certain level or whatever. And she kind of breaks that mold and says, all right, those are separate things. And, like, here's, like, healthy body weight is very different and you have many different reasons and considerations going into that compared to fitness, which is its own thing. And you can, you can be fit and be, you know, a little bit bigger or whatever. And it's, and that's, it's a separate, it's a separate thing. And she writes a lot about that. And I'm probably butchering the, the gist of it. <laughs> she's a much better writer than I am. But, um, yeah, I check out, check out the, you know, Casey Johnston, a swole woman series. And yeah, just in general, like, you know, I recommend people, if if you're a you know squishy programmer like me, uh, I recommend starting a fitness regime as soon as you possibly can because it and you don't have to like become a bodybuilder, but start something and do it regularly. It helps a lot. It's helped me with my RSI. Uh, I I basically don't have RSI anymore. It, it's it's been really great for that. In addition to just the other aspect of being healthier, so uh, definitely check that out. Yeah, especially as. Uh all of us have joined the working from home uh, lifestyle where yes. a short trip to the <laughs> to the refrigerator is is your your new coffee break uh, which oh, has yeah. definitely been dangerous <laughs> yeah i like i can't work anywhere near my kitchen 
Because if I'm, if I have to walk through the kitchen for something, I'm going to grab something and put it in my face. Like it's, just, it, it's impossible for me not to, I, I yeah. don't have the self-control. So if I'm walking through the kitchen, you know, I know I'm going to end up with some cashews or, you know, something, just, so I'm going to eat something. So I got to just stay away from the kitchen. <laughs> I never thought I was that much of a snacker until uh, I started working from home. And then I'm like, what is wrong with me? I'm like digging <laughs> through my pantry for like to grab three M&Ms. It's like, what, yeah, what right. is the point of this? I don't, yeah. <laughs> Brains are Every weird. time I think, why do I even buy these? And then the next time I'm at the store, I buy more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, th- that's awesome. That's a good one. I, I'm familiar with Casey, uh, from, I think that, uh, her Mac writing or the MacBook writing. And then I feel like she's just funny on Twitter. Yes. Um, so I see a lot of stuff, but, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's a good one to check out. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> I guess, I guess we can wrap up. This is like almost a uh, ATP <laughs> length. <laughs> Did we cover anything you wanted to cover? <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like we can we can talk about anything forever, which is I admit you know it's probably my fault, of course, but you know that's that's the nature of podcasting. So I mean, a little behind the scenes, I am not that organized. I take a lot of notes beforehand, and it's basically just a bunch of bullet points of like if I run out of a way to like keep the conversation going, I can like pluck from this, Mm. but nine times out of 10, I don't really need to. And then like, I look back through it and I'm like, Oh yeah, we actually did cover most of this, but I wasn't even looking at it during most of it because mostly I just want to talk to people uh, (laughs) about their careers and let them take it however they want to. Um, But all my, like what I want to talk about is, uh, is really just if I need to fill time. Because um, there's nothing worse than the awkward pause where there's nothing to say. Oh yeah, yeah. No, that's. <laughs> I always think like like when I when I listen back or you know after I'm done recording a show, I always think back and I I always remember the conversation in my head as being way more disorganized. Yes. Than what I later find in the edit. Oh yeah. And and I'm not like a super great communicator. <laughs> I think I am, but the truth is I'm not. And then when I, so when I get to the edit, I I will realize like okay, usually a this didn't sound as jumbled as I thought it was after I recorded it. But b I only actually communicated about seventy five percent of what I thought I communicated. Yes, <laughs> you know. So there's always like I I always listen back and realize that like okay, well I I was speaking better than I expected to be based on based on my memory. But I was not communicating as much as I wanted to. I imagine that's probably even worse because you do a podcast with three people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we all, you know, we all have things we want to say and we all have our points of view. And it's, I mean, I love doing ATP. I absolutely love it. And, and but it is certainly like, it's a challenge to get that show under two hours because anything we have to talk about, like we all have so much to say on it. <laughs> and at the end of it, as, as I think you're about to say, like at the end of it, I always realize like, oh, crap, I wanted to make this one point and I just I didn't. I got sidetracked or we started talking about something else or whatever. And there's always so much that I want to say that yeah. I later realize, oh, I didn't even I just totally skip right by the opportunity to say that. And in the edit, you have to relive that. <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. You're just like, ah, and you know that you didn't get to say it because you're like remembering what you were saying in your head while you're listening to the person talk. Mm-hmm. And then the conversation diverted away and you're like, no, you can see it leaving. Yeah. It's especially, at least with ATP, you get to do a follow-up. Yeah, that's true. But with this one, it's like the last episode is just gone. It's, you know, there's no going back. 
Uh. <laughs> yeah. I'll follow up to double-edged sword though, because like you, you can't do too much follow-up. You know, people hate when you do too much follow-up. Yeah. So you gotta like, it, it's really, I treat follow-up as being fairly expensive. Ah, oh, like, interesting. We can do some of it, but we shouldn't do a lot of it. Sometimes I'll cut entire follow-up topics uh, just because like it, I, I decide like we have too much and this one wasn't worth it. Right. So it's, it, you gotta be very careful with that. Yeah, that makes sense. Cause it could become a show that's literally just follow up every week. Right. And nobody wants that. Even, yeah. even people who like follow up and who want us to, you know, be correct about things and revisit topics, you still can't have it. It, it has to be in balance. I put way too much thought into stuff like that. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I mean, I'm with you. That's uh. I I think we are kindred spirits based on how you've talked about editing. Um, yeah. In terms of everybody tells me you shouldn't focus that much on editing. And I'm kind of like, despite how long it takes, I sort of enjoy it. Like, I like being able to craft and make it sound like I'm more eloquent than I really am. Oh, yeah. That's editor's privilege. Yeah. I mean, like, I edit myself more heavily than I edit Casey and John, in part because they're both way better speakers than me. Um, but also, in part, I, I consider that kind of editor's privilege of, like, well, if I'm going to be the editor, I'm going to make myself sound really good, and I'm going to nitpick <laughs> myself. And and I think I'm more critical of myself than I am of others, right. of course, as most, most people are, right? So, uh, so I, I certainly edit myself more heavily than them. Um, because, and I'll, I will also remember back when I I'll, I'll think back to a conversation that I was having on the show and I, I will like remember, Oh, there was a big, long, boring part. I'm going to cut that. And where then I remember so many more of those of mine than of the other two. <laughs> right. <laughs> because yeah. I'm just, you know, again, it's, it's being self-critical. Um, but it's, again, it's also editor's privilege. Well, and that horrible, horrible feeling when you reach the end of a point and you realize you can't tie it up. And so you're just sort of like, you're just sort of talking and kind of like, yep. oh man, I need to get out of this, but I don't know how to get out of this. And then that sticks with you. Even if you made a couple of good points in there with somebody else listening, that's all they'll remember. All you can remember is how that like existential dread that you had when you couldn't wrap it all up. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's, it's important. Like it's, it's nice to realize that when people are listening they are listening to it not as a formal piece of writing, yeah. but as a natural conversation. You know, we the kind of podcasts that we make are not these like, you know, every word is scripted kind of overproduced things with like fancy music beds and behind yeah. every scene and going on scene to interviews and all the like all these like high high production value podcasts that are coming out of the big the big studios and stuff that have staffs of 100 people working on them. Like we don't do that. We, we, we are just people recording ourselves talking in a, in a fairly unscripted and fairly unplanned way. And so I feel like people hear it that way and they forgive a lot of structural problems or, you know, stumbles here and there because no one talks perfectly all the time. So when people are listening to the things that we're producing and, and editing, they're listening to it as a natural conversation. And I think they give us the benefit of the doubt more often than we give ourselves credit for. And I think they, they're kind of performing autocorrect in their head constantly <laughs> the same way you would if you're having a conversation with somebody in real life. Yeah. And like uh, at least significant portion of my audience is uh, probably listening with smart speed. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> which is cleaning it all up for me. So uh, <laughs> exactly. It is weird how quickly your brain like doesn't recognize when that's turned on or off. Oh, yeah. Well, you recognize when it's off and you watch YouTube. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I guess that's true. But, like, your brain just, like, cuts out long spaces in a way that it sounds almost exactly the same. Like, it flows almost exactly the same when you cut out 
a, a overly long space to like half or whatever. Um, like while I'm editing, cause I'll sometimes cut one out, but it's like, you want to retain the fact that the person talking took a long pause. Like they were thinking about what they were saying, but you can still keep that flow with way less space. It's kind of like weird. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's kind of the principle of why smart speed sounds natural is that it doesn't just cut all silences. Like it, you know, if it, if it looked at all silences, like if you passed a silence of say one second, then one of 1.5 seconds, if it cut those both down to the same fixed amount of time, if they both became like 0.25 seconds, that would sound weird. If every silence became the same short interval, but it doesn't do that. It cuts them proportionally. And so the one that's 1.5 seconds long, and then the one that's one second long, the, when they get cut by smart speed, the first one is still going to be longer than the second one. They'll just both be shorter total. Right. And because it's doing things proportionally and in a, in a pretty like naturally sounding way, like the way I make the cuts is very naturally sounding also, uh, then I feel like that preserves the natural flow of the conversation pretty well. And yeah, it's not going to preserve every single like, you know, super huge detail of like, you know, if something's very considered, like that's, that's a different story. That's not what most people are doing on podcasts. No. <laughs> that's not how most people talk. And so I think what it ends up doing is, is kind of normalizing everyone's talking speed into like a fairly consistent rate of talking, but it's not, it's not messing up the structure of what they're saying by messing with the like proportions of the pauses between things. Right. Yeah. And you can, I mean, like you said, you can really tell when you're trying an app that uh, does it the lazy way or a lazier way. Oh, there are so many bad ways to do it. Yeah. I mean, you, or whenever like an audition, if I trim silences or something and I do it, uh, with too tight of tolerances or something, not that I don't run that against what I do, but I've played with it. Cause I honestly, what I want is smart speed, uh, in logic or, or audition, but like you can tell whenever you trim those too much and everything, it just sounds like you're in fast motion, but you're not really. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like there's. <laughs> There's a lot of a lot of common things people try to do with audio editors that you end up you try it and you're like, oh, no, this sounds all wrong. You got to yeah. do it. You got to back <laughs> out. <laughs> this is where, like I, I don't I I don't use noise gates in a way that they are audible as, as a policy. Yeah. Like because noise gates are, you know, it, you, you hear a bad one once and it ruins you forever. And you're like, OK, I'm never going to do that. You can't. <laughs> yeah. It, like if you notice the noise gate, it, you shouldn't be using one. Right. Yeah. Especially if you're doing an interview show where everybody has different levels of background audio yes um. <laughs> <laughs> this is why like one of the reasons why atp has has been so easy to keep going for so long in addition to the fact that you know i just you know i love those guys and they're great but in addition to that one of the reasons that it's been so easy for us to, to have this long-running show that we do every single week is that the technical side of it's really easy we all have good internet connections we all have good equipment we all are within the same time zone. <laughs> like, yeah. Scheduling is really oh easy. Gosh, yeah. And we all have fairly good like environments to record. And like we don't have like I don't have to heavily edit and process any of our tracks because we're all in pretty good situations. And it, that just makes things so much easier. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I imagine. Uh, I mean, I, I've been pretty spoiled. Most most guests have actually been pretty easy, but uh it is a different adventure every other week. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I will let you go. We've crossed the two hours on the recording mark, at least. Uh, so 
<laughs> there you go. This I is guess. my minimum in my contract. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, uh, what's the best place for uh, everybody to find you and your work? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Just go download Overcast. <laughs> there you <That's>, go. <laughs> if, you're not, if you're not listening on Overcast yet, please go try Overcast. And uh, if you are listening on Overcast, thanks. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to discuss the show, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Chucky C or tweet the show directly at launched FM. I'd really appreciate a rating or review in Apple podcasts, overcast breaker, or whatever your podcast of choice happens to be. And you can find show notes and more at launched FM.com. Mm-hmm.